If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Hey, Darren, have you been watching us on uh, the Electric Now app? I have. I haven't recently because I, I, I watch you pretty much every week when we're doing these things. But Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's, you know what I love about it's, the Electric Now app? It's better it's on so video. It's so easy to use. It's, it's, it's better really on video. Easy. Download the it. app and you watch us. That's all there is to it. It's so and, simple. And a lot of other cool stuff, too. You go to the app store. It says Electric Now. You download it. And then... You press, in the United States, press the button, and there it is. There it is, and you can choose. You can bookmark it. There's plenty of other movies and TV show to enjoy, and episodes of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts. So why wait? Download the Electric Now app and start enjoying us anytime. If you're a fan of Inglorious Trexperts, you're gonna love Trexperts Briefing Room, a Trexperts new series. Briefing Room. What is that? I was about to explain, then you interrupted oh, me. I it sorry. Is, it's curated audio commentaries of classic Star Trek episodes from the original series all the way through Enterprise. You're going to love it as we explore the behind the scenes making of all these wonderful Star Trek episodes with cast and crew that you would never expect to hear doing audio commentaries on Star Trek. Sounds like fun. It will be. And you <laughs> can find it on the Inglorious Trexperts podcast feed and on the new Trexperts briefing podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's go see. What's out there? If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And you've asked for it. And today <laughs> we deliver. From beyond the grave, it's Gene Roddenberry's notes on Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. All that they've loved, all that they've fought for, all that they've stood for will now be put to the test. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. The word, sir? The word is no. I am therefore going anyway. You do this, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again. Engage auto systems. Clear all moorings. Cleared, sir. One quarter impulse power. Someone is stealing the Enterprise. Warp speed. Cling on bird appraiser. She's arming torpedoes. Shields up. The shield's not responsive. Fuck! 
On this, the final voyage of the Starship Enterprise. Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. The adventure continues. Yeah, we finally this got This is going to be interesting. This is going to be really interesting because, you know, you know our stance on Star Trek III. We, no. we love it, but we want to we wanna fix it. In, let me just say desperation. Let me just say I was I was I was looking at Twitter today. Oh God. Uh, a guy who goes by the handle of Trek Lad posted. Can we all agree Star Trek three is a masterpiece? And when I <laughs> when I, I, I when I finished laughing, I said, you know what? I need to find those blah blah notes. And uh, I went I went we went into the garage. And I, I said, I'm not going to stop until I find the notes from uh, when I was writing 50 year mission. And uh, I, I finally I finally found them and it was I was triumphant. And that's when we got on the horn on the fancy blower on the blower and, and called uh, dialed up uh, Bell Oxmix over here, Mr. Ashley Edward Miller. And of course, Ashley has gotten his fair share of studio notes on mm -hmm. such movies as X-Men First Class and Thor and now is the showrunner of Dota Dragons. I keep I feel like saying Dragon's Domain, but it's Dragon's Blood. <laughs> Dragon's Blood. Uh, and uh, we're thrilled to have Ashley with us again. Welcome back to the uh, to the Trexperts, Ash. I am thrilled to be back. If this indeed a... this podcast is life from lifelessness. I must return here again. <laughs> well, you know, it has become a galactic controversy every time we um, bash on, and I shouldn't say bash, but every time we criticize Star Trek 3. Darren just said it well. You know, this is not a movie uh, that we hate. We don't hate it. it. You know, I mean, we don't think it's a masterpiece, but we certainly enjoy it. We, we you know, we think it's. Uh, heartwarming we think it's great to see the gang back together uh there are some really fun moments in it there are some exciting uh sequences and there are some dumb things too but it's a mess it's a mess and it, it's not particularly well directed it's not well shot it was like star trek 2 produced under the aegis of the tv division you know and then of course you know the first thing people are going to say but what about stealing the enterprise yeah, that's a great sequence. Yeah. What about James Horner's score? Yeah, that's a great score. Absolutely. Doesn't yeah. make it a great movie. It makes it an entertaining movie, Absolutely. a fun movie. You know, um, I don't subscribe to the even odd uh, Star Trek uh, no. evaluation, but no. I will say, you know, this is not one of the better Star Trek movies. It just isn't. You know, by comparison, it probably is to some of the later stuff, but it's, it's, um, you know, I remember seeing it back in uh, 84 mm -hmm. and, and being underwhelmed. I'm not embarrassed to say it has <laughs> it, it had, uh, you know, obviously that beautiful uh, spoiler alert uh, shot of the Enterprise uh, dying. I'll, I'll say dying, not being destroyed, but dying. Right. Uh, and and, uh, you know, unfortunately, it was also in the trailer. So it didn't come yeah. as Can any it kind be of a great spoiler time. If it's already in the TV commercial. No, no, it's not a spoiler. It's already spoiled. But spoiled. What, what's so interesting, what's so interesting is, you know, we've talked about on the show. I mean, back on our un, unproduced Star Trek um, uh, first time we did that, we talked a lot about Return to Genesis. Return to Genesis was a, 
a script uh, or treatment rather that Harv Bennett had written after Star Trek II, right. um, which uh, was very different than the final Star Trek Three. Uh, the Romulans were the villains and uh, not the Klingons. And um, there was a mining colony on, on, on this planet that the Romulans had set up. There were a lot of things about this version that were a lot better than the, the finished movie. But what we're going to look at today, and this is very interesting, are the notes that Gene Roddenberry gave to Harv Bennett yeah. on his scripts. Uh, and including the final script, uh, and as well as the studio notes, um, because you know it's often the studio is also often castigated as know nothings who don't have any respect for the franchise. We'll see if that's the case. I mean, you, Ashley, what, what's your you know take generally on on studio notes? Um, I think it depends on who's giving the notes. Quite frankly, um, I've gotten notes from executives that are bang on, awesome, exactly right, and I you know, thank God every day they were in the process to save me from myself. Um, I've gotten other notes from people that make me want to beat my head into a wall until there's just a blood stain that I can then write my name on the wall with it. So, you know, it's, there's just, it, it really depends. But, um, you know, I think uh, as with anything, um, you know, uh, a true creative professional takes all of that in, considers the source, considers the real value of the note, um, and makes good decisions that further the interests of the of the project rather than simply responding to a note. Well, one of our one of the first things you learn as a as a showrunner is uh, when it comes to notes is um, basically if the note is good, you take it. If it does no harm, you take it. If it hurts the script, you don't take it. And of course, there's an art to taking notes. Oh, we'll look at that. You never commit in, in, on the call or in the room. We'll, we'll look at that. We'll think about that. Um, right. How does a writer you. say, F you? you we'll look you, at you, it. You, you, <laughs> never, you, you, never, you never commit. And I think what's so interesting here is, um, you know, Gene Roddenberry was often painted as someone who was in the wilderness, someone who at this point was kicked upstairs to executive consultant, was, was, was uh, you know, taking the check, but uh, very much uh, out of the loop and, and unhappy. Um, and, and almost and, like, almost like a necessary nuisance. And a, and a nuisance. That's a good way of putting it, a nuisance. And uh, that he didn't have much to offer. He was Captain Dunsell for right. lack of a better word to, you know, this is the way that, you know, Hart Bennett and a lot of other people presented Gene. What these notes we're going to talk about today are kind of a stunning indictment of that. Uh, you, there's a thoughtfulness to them. And in many ways, it would have been a better movie. And in the margins, some of which we can read and some of which we can't, are Hart Bennett's off the top of his head response. Right. Uh, and we'll attempt to, to, to dissect that. But it's not particularly um, political. It's right. very, in many cases, very dismissive. So this is very interesting. And I, I think it will, you know, for those of you who love the movie, it's not going to uh, dissuade you of that, nor do we want to. Right. Uh, and those who don't, I think you're going to find this a very interesting look at, at, at what doesn't work about the film and how it could have been better. Um, you know, as we all know, they wanted to rush this into production. They didn't bring in a strong writer. It was actually Harv who, 
who did the, the, the picture. Leonard was directing and Leonard didn't have a lot of clout at that point. Right. He did on Star Trek four uh, because three had, had been a hit. Um, but on three, you know, four, but you know, on four, he had a lot of clout, but on three, he was, you know, he was a rookie and he was, you know, very tentative. As he said about four, the training wheels were off, but this was the one he had the training wheels on. So he could only push so much. Although, you know, Leonard was never one to keep his opinions to himself. Um, he was very protective of the Star Trek franchise. So why don't we take a look, Ashley, Darren, myself, and we have a special guest joining us as well to help us uh, parse these notes. And of course, that is the late, great Gene Roddenberry, who will be joining us as well. We're going to take a look at uh, Gene's original notes from June 3rd, 1983. And this, this is, is just about exactly a year before the movie opened. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. And this <laughs> In today's is uh, time frame. Those notes are six months too late. Right. <laughs> and this is Gene Roddenberry uh, notes. Uh, this is not on the final draft, but the close to final draft. He does do. We'll talk about his notes on the final draft shortly, which are a lot more. Um, he's a lot more political in this first set of notes. And you yeah. see him getting more pissed off in this, as they get closer. And you see how little Harv is incorporated in his notes. So this is the June 3rd, 1983 notes from Gene Roddenberry to producer slash writer Harv Bennett. Dear Harv. In an effort to get this to you quickly, I am commenting on a page and scene basis. Thus, much of what follows consists of terminology suggestions and other points that are easily fixable. As you'll see, however, I now have more concerns about this draft than on my first reading of it. At that time, I was delighted, and properly so, at the number of first draft problems you had fixed and missed seeing others that I should have seen. Also, as covered in another memo, I had an opportunity to, meanwhile, to hear a fairly large, diverse group of science fiction fans, not just Trekkies, discussing their hopes and fears about Star Trek III, and this opened my eyes to several things that all of us might very much like to see in this film. At any rate, I hope the following is helpful. Page 2, Scene 1. Does this star date come after our previous films? Harv's response in the margin is yes. Yeah. Page three. <laughs> By the way, how does Harv say fuck you? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. I would have said F you in that response, just by the way. Now it seems that these are these are Harv's notes to himself. Yes, 100 yeah, percent He's I, not I, trying I, to what, he doesn't need to be political to himself. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's what notes when he does the rewrite he's gonna use and yeah. take. And probably he gave this to his secretary uh right. or assistant uh, uh to, you know to create a memo or actually to make some of the changes so right. um or here we go. you know what i do which is hey assistant you read the notes first and you figure out what's going to send my blood pressure through the roof <laughs> and then prepare me for it and then i'll sit down and read <laughs> oh that's interesting. <laughs> I've never done that. I always take the notes call and I always sit there and I just take it with the painted on smile. But like <laughs> you said, it's like, um, you know, sometimes you're lucky enough to have an executive or executives who really uh, who get it and, and give great notes. And I've had that a bunch of times and then sometimes not. Yeah. OK, uh, so, Gene, uh, you have some thoughts about Savic. We're continuing. Page three at bottom. Savic's twinkle and other humanisms make it difficult for the actress to play being as fully alien as the character really is. 
the Spock experience makes it clear that the audience likes aliens who have to struggle a bit to think and act in ways that humans can understand. And I recommend that Savick be played at least as unhuman as Spock, especially since she is doubly alien and has no human blood at all. And Harv Bennett says, agree. This is an interesting note. No, <laughs> I don't ahead, either. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, this is an interesting note because as we know, Robin did play it very straight. Um, yeah. And they sort of got rid of the idea that, um, I guess that was um, uh, Harv Be- uh, Nick Myers, that she was half Romulan. Now they're talking about her being completely Vulcan. And, you know, they made the, the some would say, egregious mistake of just having her play it completely unemotional mm-hmm. and completely monotone and it's a less interesting character not because and, robin is any and yeah. interestingly without a twinkle right and without mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. a complete lack of it whereas yeah. you know kirstie alley in in star trek 2 kind of had one man yeah like there she had personality it's why we we really dug that character in that movie and i think when you start giving notes like this it, it not only hamstrings the writing it hamstrings the actor dr marcus it's your planet Begin scanning, please. This is where the fun begins, Savick. Just like your father. So human. All units functional. Recorders are on. Scanning sector one. Foliage in fully developed state of growth. Temperature, 22.2 Celsius. Sector two indicating desert terrain. Minimal vegetation. Temperature... 39.4. Sector 3, subtropical vegetation. Temperature decreasing rapidly. It's snow. Snow in the same sector. Fantastic. Fascinating. All the varieties of land and weather known to Earth within a few hours' walk. Metallic mass. Close range scan. A photon tube. Gravitational fields were in flux. It must have soft landed. In code to Starfleet. Captain Spock's tube located on Genesis surface. Yes, sir. Coding your message. I don't believe it. What is it? If equipment is functioning properly, indications are an animal life form. You said there wouldn't be any. There shouldn't be any. Cross-referenced and verified. An unidentifiable life form reading. Do you wish to advise Starfleet, sir? Wait a minute. We don't know what we're talking about here. Why do we beam it up? Oh, no, you don't. Regulations specifically state nothing shall be beamed aboard until danger of contamination has been eliminated. Captain, the logical alternative is obvious. Beaming down to the surface is permitted. If the captain decides that the mission is vital and reasonably free of danger. Captain, please, we'll take the risk, but we've got to find out what it is. Or who. Right, you know, suddenly you're putting her in a box where she's afraid to move. Two of my favorite scenes in Star Trek II are Savic scenes. Mm-hmm. One is the scene where she's talking to Spock in the engine room after mm-hmm. Kirk leaves. And, you know, she says he's not at all like I expected. You know, well, let me guess. So he- let me guess the other scene. <laughs> you know what the Did other she scene change is. her hair? Yeah, the, the elevator. The elevator. I, I love yeah. the elevator scene. Yeah, me too. I love it, and uh, because it's like, like, like the TV series. Even in the direst of circumstances, 
there's always humor. And this is right, right before he gets the call from regular one. Right. So um, it's a wonderful scene. Even when I love when she lets her hair down during the during the funeral, even just mm-hmm. to, um, so a nice little touch. I, I love so much of her performance, even in, you know, the teaser. You know, during where, where it looks like she's in command. Right. And she says, forget. damn, right? It's yeah. like, mm-hmm. that's just the first thing you find out about her. See, this is the right. kind of dumb crap that leads to people like in fandom thinking that Vulcans don't have emotions at all, right? Or you end up getting like these very hidebound um, interpretations of Vulcans that you get in the next generation um, mm-hmm. that just made them such a goddamn snooze fest. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. It's so funny because it's very hard to put yourself in that situation of seeing Star Trek two for the first time and not knowing that it's a fake out, but boy, I envy someone seeing it for the first time who doesn't know this is a simulation because seeing that scene for the first time, you know, when, you know, you think she's in command and all these people are dying and then the door opens and Kirk emerges in the smoke. It's just great. It's great. So Mm -hmm. great. You know, epic. It's epic. And, and it's a great, one of the great entrances for a character is, you know, Shatner holding, you know, uh, well, he's not holding the book yet, but Shatner uh, coming in, uh, entering the, uh, entering the bridge. So great, great scene. So, okay. So now this next one is pretty funny coming from Gene. Uh, And this is uh, page seven, scene 12. Do we really want to emphasize drunkenness, cocktail parties, neighborhood bars, et cetera? So much in our hopefully optimistic picture of the future. I'm optimistic about those things. Sorry. Caution, we are not many years away from alcohol consumption on film being regarded somewhat as we now look at cigarette smoking. And I love that Hart Bennett puts next to that a giant question mark. Yeah, yeah. Because there is no one involved with Star Trek who was not a huge drinker. So this is the bizarre, most bizarre note. And Gene was the biggest lush of all of them. Oh my God, right? <laughs> like it's legendary. It's insane. Yeah, but so I not, love the fact that he's, he's aspirational. Yeah, because nobody drinks on film anymore. Or yeah, that doesn't happen. But yeah, I, it's I, like- you know, <laughs> but I, you know, I think if you look back to the dawn of film, people, it's different than smoking. I don't think recreational drinking is something that, you know, is necessarily a negative or, or something where, right. you know, there's a, there's a desire to, to, to get, you know, to overcome that. We did that with prohibition. Yeah, but, you know, it didn't work. Yeah. But uh, there, there aren't any horrific traffic accidents because someone was smoking. You know what? That's also very true. Um, but smoking, but dry, but uh, drinking doesn't cause lung cancer. Um, <laughs> so you, so you, there's a trade-off, but this is also, again, my God, you know what? When I read these notes, what I see is the outline of all of the crap that made Next Generation so hard to watch in those first couple of seasons, mm. right? Because, and this is part of it, right? It's like, this gets overinterpreted into, there's, you know, in the optimistic future, people won't be having fun. It's like, well, okay. Please don't do the voice. I won't do the voice, <laughs> never again. It, it sickens him. <laughs> sickens him, but it's, you know, I mean, come on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So now page eight, scene 14. This is uh, when we're talking about the... Uh, this one kills me. <laughs> the, the, the freighter with Valkyris. Page eight, scene 14. The, quote, small and grubby merchantman could have a Buck Rogerish look if not carefully handled, especially with dialogue of steady boys, the veiled exotic beauty, 
tobacco juice and et cetera. Yeah, I, I uh, Hart Bennett says he agrees, mm-hmm. which is interesting yeah. um, because I'm not sure what it, that nothing was means. changed at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, and in fact, they, they like the character so much they put him in the uh, Phantom Menace. But you know what? That note is like one of those please write it good notes or one of those please make it good notes. That's such a pointless note. That note is pointless. Okay, well, we're going to shoot this in a corner on the stage. We're going to put some cargo netting down, and uh, we're going to shoot it real quick. Exactly. <laughs> no, that, his his note there is to not make it shitty. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So why a give note that note? It was nobody, not followed. Right. But nobody sets out to make it shitty. Right. It's like, oh, please. Apparently, don't make they do. Well, apparently, they uh, apparently apparently they end do up because that the way. attitude was it doesn't really matter. It's just this little thing. But it's so was funny that the though. Attitude? Was that the attitude? It's yes. Like, was it? Yeah. I love how like, so Leonard was, Nimoy it doesn't said, you know matter. What? Screw it. This scene doesn't yes. matter. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. So, so as it, long as we're saying that it was Leonard. Any, it doesn't have any of the Star Trek characters in it. It doesn't matter. Okay. So then why is the note being given at all other than to say, why are we doing this scene? No, it says be <laughs> careful with it because it, because it well, could, everybody's could going to be careful with it. Silly. This is like one of those notes that I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally agree. And then like, whatever, like on the phone call. You know what I mean? It's just it's it's definitely an executive note. I when think was... you're too. I think you're too close to it, Mr. <laughs> Miller. No, 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 no. <laughs> not at all. I, I, I love how um, Buck Rogers is used as a pejorative. Yeah, um, because I've done the same thing all the time. I, this mm-hmm. looks like two Buck Rogers. It can't be my. And we're not talking about the 79 Buck, right? I don't think. No. Uh, you know, we're talking about like you know the serials and the cliffhangers. It's just like although at Buck this Rogers, point he could he could be referring to the seventy nine yeah, yeah, series because yeah yeah yeah. But I mean that that has become the way of saying something cheesy and cheap looking. It's, yeah. it's two Buck Rogers. Okay, so page nine, scene fourteen. Suggest that uh, Krug's half timber wolf, half lizard, be played as something more than just a pet, such as in common in human culture. This animal or some version of it offers an opportunity to look more deeply into what the Klingons are and what they believe. Like what I tried to do with the giant insect in my story draft. Now, way, this is a good sorry, note go ahead, until he gets to the last sentence. That's a great uh, note until he gets to well, that. Uh, that last sentence is fascinating to me because it, it talks about Gene's story draft. And this is the first I ever heard. Yeah. You know, we all know that he did a uh, Star Trek II script that wasn't made, but I had no idea that Gene actually did a story draft for Star Trek III. And I, I'd love to see what that is. I just, I've never heard of it. Yeah, it was uh, it was trash canned, no doubt. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. Um, but that's very interesting. I would have loved to see the giant insect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. And of course, Harv agrees. As long as it so, wasn't he, Buck Rogers-ish, yeah. I'm sure it would have been great. Exactly. Exactly. So page 10, scene 17. Now, this is obviously referring to the Klingon bird of prey. We're going to continue with this. The variable wings are a bit Star Wars-ish. Also, having them move while in spaceflight is very questionable science fiction. Having them move to accommodate weapons is bad engineering, too. Caution, while our audience may accept a few such things in trade for photographic excitement, there is a danger point at which they may decide they're not getting Star Trek as promised. I, I think that's a pretty great note, except I have to ask, is he concerned that if the wings move well in spaceflight, the wind will shear them off? 
Well, I think he's saying that there's no error in space. And, and, exactly. But here's the funny thing. You know, here's Harv's response. Agree. But what what do you suggest? What do you suggest? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, I mean, it's 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 a giant it's, insect. And of course, that's and of course, that's the ship that they're still using 30 yeah. years later. Yeah. You yeah. know, the one we all hate. Everyone hated. It's like that's the ship that uh, that, you know. But, you know, I think the problem is. They didn't have Yesko von Putkammer to right, give them true. advice on the science fiction of it all. <laughs> or Jessica von Puttermaker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, he also has a note here about um, ranks, Klingon ranks, uh, and why you shouldn't call them um, by uh, by rank. Are, are we jumping around? I can't yeah, see. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's a good note. I'd be saying... You know, uh, recommend we don't identify Klingons as officers, sailors, sergeants. It will suggest right. human qualities and could thus affect the inventiveness of various arts and crafts people and others working on the film. Okay, he's That's right. What Harf said he's right. That's what. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. He's, he, okay, because it's it's limiting. It's limiting the thought and the creativity, and it makes it too so human. Right. So uh, yeah. Okay. Um, here we are, page twelve, scene twenty nine. Isn't FSV vessel a bit clumsy, unnecessary? Now, this is apparently what was uh, in front of the number on the Grissom. FSV something. What number. do you think that stood for, Ashley? As a Federation Science Federation Vessel? Federation Science Vessel, absolutely. Actually, oh. I think I wish they had done that because, you know, when we even with like, you know, the, the you know, our our ships in the Navy, like those 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 numbers aren't USS and then the number, those numbers refer to a specific thing. I think that was actually pretty good world building. Um, And I think that Gene got confused. I think he forgot that the enterprise was the NCC 1701. Yeah, I thought it stood for fucking shitty vessel. But um, (laughs) that like flat uh, saucer vehicle. But I I think you were right. I think it is Federation (laughs) science vessel. (laughs) Okay. Um, uh, Page 13. Scene 30. Suggests that Spock's tube is unclear. What he means is uh, you can't see through it. That's <laughs> not what he means. <laughs> yeah, and Har- Harv's response is why. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Gene goes on on page 14, scene 30, to talk more about what's going on the Genesis uh, planet. Life form terminology ignores the fact that vegetation is a life form, too. Further down on the page, the meaning of Esteban's can you do that is unclear. Page 16, scene 33. Have many science fiction concerns about the huge space dock as described. Do not understand why it would have doors, why Enterprise would enter on an arc-like course or any of the great warehouse of ships concept. I love what Harv says. Explain. I think that's pretty explained as you would to a child. Right. Uh, again, man, it's like I, I think that the I always thought the space dock looked cool. And I loved watching the Enterprise go in. I loved watching them go out. I loved that all those ships. I thought that looked cool as shit and kind of gave that movie um something that was visually distinctive. You know, it, it's just I, I don't know. Like I, I feel like at this point. Gene is kind of, but Gene's not wrong because in Star Trek One you have the big dry dock, right? Right now, the the size of this space dock would have to be so massive. And if you're in space, why would you build doors? Something that closed in. So yeah. I I get it. Like I, I the agree. Death Star. 
But the um, I, I mean, look, I I generally agree with that. But what he is missing is when we see the the um, the the you know the the dry dock in Star Trek: The Motion Picture, it's awesome because it really shows off the Enterprise, and it's I think we all agree it's one of our favorite sequences. But what's great about Space Dock is that for the first time you really get a sense of scale, like in a way that I don't think, I, I never quite remember feeling that sense of scale. In but you Star see, Trek. you can still have scale without having a giant floating mushroom. Yeah, you know, that's, that's true. That's very uh, true. Uh, it depends the, on if you smoke the mushroom or what you're doing with it. One of the things that, I, that, that was in Star Trek Beyond that I thought was a pretty cool idea you know, and here, listen, I'm saying, listen to what I'm saying. Oh, shit. What's about to happen? What's happening was the, the space station that was, uh, you know, inside the bubble. I wouldn't have had it inside the bubble, but that gives us, you know, a big sense of scale. And, mm-hmm. and uh, in relation to seeing uh, our, you know, ship next to it and all that. And that was an interesting take on the space station thing. Mm-hmm. The space dock is not interesting to me mm. because it's, it's too simple a shape and it doesn't, it doesn't give the scale to me uh, that it should by seeing a bunch of different ships in there that we can see, you know, from orbit, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, if it were a more open structure, uh, that would be more realistic, quote unquote, uh, to a something that you would uh, dock to in space. I mean, the, the fact that you have to uh, go through a, go through doors is ludicrous. And and I you know I know that that's really important for you know Scotty trying to open the doors to escape and it's all fun and everything, but surely can't there be some other way to make those moments? That's all. Well, because I, I agree with first Gene of all, Lombard my name isn't completely. Shirley, and secondly, it is though. <laughs> Freak, Shirley <frequently>, Edward Miller, <laughs> frequent frequent listeners of our podcast will know that, of course, I'm partial to the space dock because of the presence of the Blue Bayou restaurant. So, you know, <laughs> yes. I don't think that opportunity would have presented itself in, sure in many it other situations. But the sure fact you have these big glass windows where you can watch the ships arrive. You can while still, you can have, still have that suit. and have an open architecture. That's Absolutely. Right. Okay. There you go. <laughs> Just like a Problem space Problem solved. Thing. Note taken. Okay. <laughs> the next the next thing uh, is is really a case of semantics because uh, Gene has a problem with transwarp drive yeah. and, and presents it. And Harv just, I think, plays a little fast and loose. So what, what's your next concern, Mr. Roddenberry? Will our audience accept hyperwarp? Ordinary warp already deals with hyperspace and thus is already hyperwarp. Now, Harv put a question mark. Clearly, he changed it to transwarp, which right. is his way of addressing the note. And also okay. sounds cooler. It does. Yeah, it does. Transwarp sounds better than hyperwarp. But um, what what is the uh, how do you address transwarp? I don't well, know. Was, except I do know that the warp scale changed between the original series and Star Trek: The Next Generation. Sure. So you know, my rat, my head, my uh, head cannon is that uh, that the new scale reflected the uh, the transwarp drive, which was probably I, now. Wait a second. When the hell did we turn into nerds? What the f- is happening on this podcast? Why I is know. this? That's, how dare you? How dare me? How <laughs> I dare that. me, sir? Are you coming to Vegas? Yeah. You're going to come, you're gonna come to the ass. con? Yeah. It's going to be good. Con. We're going to do a con. con. We'll, we'll talk about this at the con. Excellent. So I guess Ashley's still old. 
friend. Okay. <laughs> so um anyway, uh always bet on black. Um page um, 21, scene 42. This is um Gene's uh expressing concern about uh McCoy's uh plea to be taken back to Genesis. I suggest we need a much stronger motivation for McCoy's take me back to Genesis demand. <laughs> if he knows what he hopes to accomplish, he hasn't made it clear to Kirk. They have no evidence to think anything but that Spock's body is now a rotting corpse. <laughs> but we have to climb the steps of Mount Salea. Um, okay, I can't read uh, Harv's notes, so I, I, I'm yeah, not sure what to Can't tell. We'll, we'll never know. Never know what he's thinking. Uh, so page 23. I think it says you have to grant the premise asshole or something like that. I'm not sure. <laughs> now, now, this is, now that I think this next note is a really good point by Gene, because, of course, as we know, the Enterprise, which was just refit for Star Trek, the motion picture, is already being taken out of service in Star Trek 3. It seems uh, a little... Um, it doesn't it doesn't quite add up and, and and gene calls him out on this i cannot believe that our audience will buy the 20th century concept of vehicles becoming obsolete after a few years of use we are already beginning to build things with fewer and fewer moving parts and advanced circuitry that never gets old what is it that wore out on the enterprise and isn't warp 9.9 across the entire galaxy in a matter of weeks. Sorry, Voyager. Already fast enough? Well, look, I'm, I'm sorry. Clearly, he never owned an iPhone. Well, and by the way, <laughs> you know. clearly, he, yeah, exactly. He, I guess he's sort of, I mean, look, he's but, not 100% wrong in some respects, right? But um, I, 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 I don't know. I, I think that, that part of his, his premise is a little screwy. I mean... But this goes to the core of how Gene thought of the ship and how... Uh, uh, Harv thought of the ship, right? Harv thought of, of the ship as disposable, and Gene thought it as central. But well, see, you know, I, I, always... I read. Go ahead. Sorry, I, Ashley, you might have something to say about this having uh, uh, been in the military, but um, you know, it, it's been said that Gene, being an aviator, uh, um, his the plane was meant was like a person to him, you know. Yeah. Whereas uh, Harv Bennett was in the Navy. And the ship was just a vehicle. And so uh, Gene always treated the Enterprise as much more Im important and less disposable and as a character, whereas for Harv, it was just a, a means of getting around. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's really culturally true, um, because I think once you have a, a command, you know, once you have, you know, that the, the deck under your, your feet, I mean, our ships are she's, they're hers, right? It's like the Enterprise is a she. And whether we're talking about like, you know, uh, the one that fought in WW2, like, or we're talking about NCC 1701. Um, so there's a, there's a personality and there's a, a reality to that. I mean, again, this is just what I always interpreted was that number one, the Enterprise had already been through one major refit that she was old as hell because Robert April had been in command of her, then Christopher Pike. She'd actually clearly been through at least one refit if you kind of look at what happens yeah. to the warp engines. Um, those things probably don't last forever. And then she had the ever-loving crap beaten out of her in the uh, in the fight with Khan. So I just right. figured, 
okay. So she pulls back up into space dock and they're like, holy crap, the cost of doing another refit, it's better to retire her and just say, hey, look, it's the Enterprise. Yeah, yeah but I think that, that's the but, argument. Yeah. But does that work in a society that doesn't have any money? See? You mean like because it's poor? See, but no, I, or he I, doesn't I, use money. Because, yeah. because resources are unlimited. But, but I, like right. what, I like what Ashley said, that if you can make the argument that ship was so beat the shit in con that it's not worth fixing, you know, that, it's yeah. that you're better off starting from scratch because the ship is so damaged that it can't really be uh, repaired, um, you know, and the technology has moved on and that a refit won't bring it up to the specs. Oh, my God, we're getting this is just yeah, so. <laughs> I mean, yeah, now oh, this is like a whole different ish, to, episode. But to close off this paragraph, though, the, <laughs> I do the think it's a good note. That's the, the funny part. The response is is twofold. First of all, there's a tiny little no written on the side. Yeah. But the whole thing has been scratched out in yeah. marker. Yeah, that's true, because he totally hated that note. He Again, totally hated that note. And um, I don't know that it's. I don't know that the note's totally insane other than he's so wrong about warp 9.9, but um, yeah, <laughs> sorry. I, this is just the nerdy part of me. Again. I just, I can't. Okay. Well, look, the next note is also a very cogent note. Uh, page 24, scene 43, where he talks about this whole idea of uh, Genesis becoming a galactic controversy. I don't understand Admiral Morrow's logic. Staying away from the Genesis planet, doesn't resolve the doomsday weapon issue. Can understand the Genesis device being a forbidden subject, but staying away from the planet comes off like the political foolishness seen in our 20th century now. Suggests that this entire story turn needs examination and discussion. To which Harv, after much contemplation and thought, responds, no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is, I mean, he's absolutely right. I mean, if, if suddenly this life from lifelessness has been created by uh, the Genesis, quote unquote, torpedo, Feder the Federation, you think, would cordon off the area, have a bunch of ships uh, investigating and yeah. analyzing. And they wouldn't just say, OK, uh, we're just going to. They, they wouldn't you know, just send a third, a third yeah. string shitty commander ship uh, to go That's check it out. That's the logic failure, right? The yeah. logic failure is not that they close it off. The logic failure is not that there was a, wasn't a goddamn task force of Starfleet vessels surrounding that place yeah. to prevent exactly what happened in this movie. Correct, correct. I mean, why are you going to send Esteban? Esteban has no <laughs> no clue what he's doing. Might as well I send mean, Harriman, for God's sake. I mean, you know, you know, you send Esteban, David Marcus, and Savic. Oh right? my God, it's like the Three Stooges over there. Didn't you originally, though, want to send Carol Marcus, but you couldn't get B.B. Bishop? Well, no, that's not what happened. He, she wanted to do the movie. Harv wrote her out to save money and basically couldn't really. He didn't want her to be complicit because once he decided that David Marcus had cheated by using proto matter. Then it was easy to kill him off. Yeah. And then what do you do with Carol Marcus? And right. did she know what was happening? Did she know? Okay. So I understand why. But it's just a shame because it would have been interesting to see Carol Marcus again. Sure. You know, it, it would have been a more complex movie, I think. And, and to see, you know, Kirk having to deal, you know, process that with, you know, with her. But, you know, the death of David becomes like the set piece. And then it's never talked of again, except, you know, briefly alluded to in Star Trek six. But it never really resonates. That right. he, you know, you know, because, the, you know, unfortunately, a lot of that had to do with the fact that, you know, 
the role was miscast. You know, Merritt Buttrick does not feel like the son of William Shatner. Right, right. You know, so uh, and I think part of that was just because the cast was so wary of newcomers taking their roles like they didn't want somebody who could potentially you know take over one of the leads like oh the show will become about kirk's son now right mm-hmm. you know and, and and you know because back then they were so territorial i mean you see that with when next generation is announced how they're all publicly you know lambasting and bashing uh a next gen because they right. feel like it's going to steal their jobs or george decay like being at a convention i was at telling all the fans to write to paramount asking them not to do star trek deep space nine right mm. but do captain sulu instead because i'd be great as a captain and a very dynamic lead in a new show from paramount <laughs> 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 oh man okay um so now on page 25 Scene 47, Gene is nitpicking over some of uh, the film's dialogue. Will the audience understand Krug's homes in the country, children playing (laughs) dialogue? Even if they do, it may be bad science fiction to suggest that a shortage of planets exist, which is also quite a leap away from Star Trek's format assumption that there are hundreds of millions of habitable planets in our galaxy alone. Well, that is a really a fascinating idea. And indeed, he postulates, uh, you know, is it realistic? So Harv Bennett clearly, once again, giving this matter a lot of thought, writes, no. <laughs> uh, but here's where I think and it's interesting because I see both sides of this argument. But here's where I think Harv was right to say no, because there is something that is buried in in the premise of the Genesis device. Right. And set, m- necessity is the mother of invention. Um, And clearly the Genesis device was designed as a terraforming tool, right? So you wouldn't need to do that if you had access to unlimited resources in terms of habitable planets. So you, again, this kind of, to me, gets to granting the, to granting the premise a little bit, even though I I don't know that Gene is wrong. What I love about this is it shows Gene is very invested Mm-hmm. And takes this all very seriously, you know. So if, if nothing else, this whole myth that Gene didn't care or you know was petulant, you know, is is you know this is a, an indictment of that myth. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay. So the next note is also regarding uh, Krug's dialogue, um, and this is um, how how do you refer to the what was called the Genesis torpedo, and Gene is calling it call it the Genesis device or Genesis planet wherever possible. And Harv charitably takes the note and says, yes. Okay. Now um, Gene's next note is regarding Savik. Don't understand Savik's first line. Also don't understand scientist David's second line impatience with scientific matters. If we make him seem childish, this diminishes the impact of his death. Hart writes, what's wrong? <laughs> Rerec. Well, I, I, I kind of agree. Uh, you know, at, at some point, uh, he says, Captain, we'll take the risk. We got to find out what it is. You know, he's a yeah. little bit uh, go getty. I agree. I don't think he's very scientific and no. he's not respecting the chain of command. And uh, he's. But he's uh, an engineer, not a scientist. I would yeah, argue. But he, no, an he's engineer, a scientist. not a scientist. Yeah. 
Mom's a scientist. David and Star Trek too call themselves scientists. Yeah, that's true. That's fair. No. That's fair. Okay. Okay. So uh, now the next one, of course, you know, once we're on Genesis, uh, AKA stay, I don't remember what stage it is, but uh, uh, a stage at Paramount. Planet Hell. Planet uh, Hell. <laughs> basically Planet Hell. And again, you know, uh, Charlie Crichton, who directed, not Charlie Crichton, uh, Charles Correll, who, who was the DP, right. wanted to shoot this in Hawaii. Um, but uh, because of the budget, they chose to do it on a soundstage, like, quote, unquote, we used to do on the old TV show. Well, you know, that was why it was the old TV show and not the new movies. But uh, so they shot on a soundstage. And this is an interesting note that Gene has about um, when they encounter the, uh, the tube. Do we want worm-like things which may suggest maggot-like life coming from Spock's rotted body? <laughs> or... Is it that the Genesis planet has a potential for generating animal life or neither? I rather like having the things there, but I'm not sure whether or not I'm missing some point. Well, Harv agrees. Harv agrees yeah. with them. So, uh, but I, which is interesting because I do feel that exactly what Gene said he didn't like is what's in the movie. Right. No, but, so. but, but he says he liked having them there. He just wanted it explained. And they do with the throwaway uh. line. Uh, yeah. microbes from the tube surface. We shot them here from Enterprise. Right, yeah. which I thought was a pretty cool line. Yeah. Okay, now one of one of what we'll see throughout the Gene's notes is a concern uh, with the um, the Katra. Right. And the refusion. This is his first note. Um, Harv seems to have less of a problem and he refers in his notes to Buddhism and the soul and the body. But uh, tell us what Gene had to say about this. I suggest that our audience may have some trouble buying the two rather large assumptions required of them here. One, that Vulcans, or their consciousness, cannot die. And two, that neither Starfleet, in which Vulcans serve, nor all of the Federation scientists have ever noticed this fact. <laughs> Caution, since Star Trek II, continual questions and demands from science fiction and other audiences have centered around a concern that they might someday be told Vulcans don't die, and they have made it clear that they would consider this to be cheating. Demand. He's not wrong. No, Demand. not at all. No, but his, the, the, the bigger point is less about the goddamn science fiction and more about the goddamn fiction, which is that this character, who, who beloved though he may be, gave his life uh, for a reason. And it had an emotional impact. It had meaning. It had content. And the the issue is not, well, shit, Vulcans might never die. The, the issue is that suddenly that sacrifice is like, see, it wasn't that much of a sacrifice yeah. because he's still with us, which is a completely yeah. different concern. It's and, like and I, the, Spock, Spock knew that he could be brought back and he, he implanted his cotter into McCoy for that reason. Exactly. Which, like, I, I always interpreted at least how they 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 spun it in Star Trek three that, you know, that the, that it wasn't something that like happens all the time, that it was yeah. just this very special circumstance. But yeah, to me, like the great sin, and this is me not granting the premise, which is that, that Spock should come back at all. I would have left him dead. That's just me. <laughs> I think we, we've talked about this and I think we all feel that in a way that the, the, the franchise may have been better and it, it may have been the movies might have gone in a much more interesting direction 
had they left Spock dead and his sacrifice was valued. How would these characters carry on without Spock? Mm-hmm. Because of course he made this really noble sacrifice and it gives an amazing, um, it's an amazing message that sometimes, you know, the good of the few, the good of the many outweighs the good of the few or the one. And by, by in the Star Trek three negates everything mm-hmm. by saying the good of the one is more important, which right. is not a great message. No. You know, which, which is it? <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's like, you know, you talk about the greatest generation of World War II, which made all these sacrifices. And then, you know, uh, now it's like uh, the guy won't wear a mask because uh, he's uncomfortable. So it's like as opposed to the guy who stormed Normandy. Well, so this he, is he, a little he, more like I mean, and in, in fairness to the message here, like this is this to me, the Spock thing is a little more like saving Private Ryan. Right. It's right. like there is there are things that we value um we should value about the individual and that we do care about our friends and that just as spock would sacrifice um to save us we should individually kind of make that choice to 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 save him um so i don't i don't think that the the mask analogy is is necessarily great i mean you're not wrong but the the mask analogy here i don't i don't know that it applies i think that in a better version of star trek 3 that uh that we would have gotten some nuance on um on uh on what spock said about the needs of the many and the needs of the one well and we've also said that you know what's so important is the, the kobayashi maru you never face death you've always cheated right? right so you know he finally has to face death you can't escape you you know the reaper don't fear the reaper you can't escape your you know your your you know eventually he has to face death right, right. and it's but a spock very point spock cheated yeah. yeah, yeah, but then it's not drink three. Well, not really. <laughs> you know what? Spock comes back. <laughs> yeah, you know, change so the rules. Yeah, I mean, so yeah. it, again, it negates everything that's great about Star Trek Two, which is yeah. another reason why I, I, you know, as much as I might get a kick out of Star Trek Three, I don't respect Star Trek Three. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay. So now we uh, he talks about Sarek and the performance that Mark Leonard, who's always welcome in Star Trek, always a delight. You spoke of your friendship. Yes. Ask you not to grieve. Yes. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Spock. I have been and always shall be your friend. Live long and prosper. No. Forgive me. It is not here. I had assumed he mind-melded with you. It is the Vulcan way when the body's end is near. We were separate. He couldn't touch me. I see. And everything that he was Everything he knew 
lost. Yeah, there's there's two notes here that uh, occurred during the mind melt scene between Sarek and Kirk. It is illogical, forgive me, that Sarek would jump on Kirk this way. He admits he has been shown Kirk's own report and thus would already know exactly what happened during Spock's death. Continuing, Sarek shows extremely human-like emotion throughout this scene and elsewhere. Are we forgetting that he's even more Vulcan than Spock? So number one, this is me just being hard. You condescending prick. Uh, <laughs> and that number two, in the same way that you were wrong about Savick, you're wrong about this scene, right? What's powerful about this scene is, and thank God, you know, Mark Leonard knew how to play his character, right? Like you got to trust the actors to play those scenes, but understand like, it's to me, it was, it's important that Sarek invests emotion um, in his son and the fate of his son. I think that's incredibly powerful. I think that's the reason why you bring him back, right? And that you have to have that moment. You have to have that scene uh, because it feels like it, it gives emotional weight to something that happened in another movie that you can well, only talk about now. What happens in the scene, uh, you know, possibly because of these notes, what happens in the scene in the movie is that um, Sarek's uh, emotionalism doesn't come through until after he has melded with Kirk. Right. And experienced those emotions. Right. So I think that I think that fixes the the problems. That I agree. And as you'll note, uh, Harv Bennett uh, responded to this note by saying discuss. So mm. he was open to the note. And uh, more importantly, the next note, uh, the original line, Harv's line at the end, after he, you know, he accuses Kirk of having, you know, uh, lied to know, him or something. Right. Or, yeah. And, and he goes, hidden, hidden what happened. He says, I am deeply sorry. And uh, Gene says, it's not a Vulcan line. And they changed, uh, they changed mm -hmm. the line to forgive me, Kirk. It is not here or whatever they said. Right. And, and that's a great change. And Harv yeah. acknowledges it by saying, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then also changing it, the line. it out. O-H-K-A-Y. Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Okay. Okay. So um, page 35, uh, scene 66. This is a great note. And here it is. Unclear what Kirk and the others are seeking as they play back their ship's tapes. If Spock indeed did leave some information in McCoy's mind, why not have Sarek mind meld with him and determine the truth? I mean, yeah. yeah, why not? I mean, <laughs> Harv's, Harv's response isn't wrong because he's in jail. But frankly, yeah. I think he's right. It's like and it wouldn't have it wouldn't have um, it would have actually it wouldn't have interfered with the plot of the movie. It would have made it yeah. a, make a lot more sense. It would have been like, OK, if you had if we had been playing this like we didn't know exactly what the hell was going on with McCoy. And then Sarek does the mind meld and says, oh, shit, Spock's in there. Right. You know, it's just that suddenly has got. That feels like yeah. an answer to the scene with yeah. Kirk. But it's I, I think it, it does. You know, if if you do have Sarek, you know, uh, open the open the truth and let everybody know what's going on. The problem is, then why are, why is the Federation and Starfleet being such assholes to them? Mm -hmm. That's the is problem. They watch Picard. Oh, right. no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, it's funny because. You know, this is this is the exact same note or same problem I have with Turnabout Intruder, where in mm -hmm. the second uh, uh, Kirk says, um, 
Janet Lester says, you know, she switched, bo- you know, bodies with me and I'm Captain Kirk in the body of Janet Lester. Why Spock doesn't mind meld with him immediately. Right. Her immediately. Exactly. And mm-hmm. that would be, oh, yeah. Oh, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep, oh, she did. sorry. I, I forgot I'm Vulcan. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's just like, you know, that's why, again, it's like we recently recorded commentary on Spock's brain. Everybody says, so, but, but you know, that boy doesn't hold a candle to turn about intruder, which is just so sloppy. Moving we'll on. To do comment- we'll have to do commentary on that one day. Okay. So it's page 37, scene 68. This is going why the Enterprise goes back to Genesis. Why must they go back to Genesis planet in the USS Enterprise? Later in the scene, it would seem that a wise and friendly commanding admiral would shuttle Kirk and McCoy to the Grissom research vessel already on duty at the Forbidden Planet. Is Kirk's request really, really that unreasonable? Do we need more motivation for a refusal? Also, Kirk should never salute on exiting a friendly meeting with a fellow admiral. Well, the last sentence is right. Yeah. Yeah. And he's not wrong about... You know, why are they being such jerks to him about yeah. not going to Genesis? Well, I, I mean, the, the deeper here's the thing. It's like to me that a lot of um, a, a lot of Gene's notes are very reactive and they're very reactive in the moment rather than being holistic. Right. The holistic note here is, look, here's the thing that you need to fix and that, you know, you're and a lot of other things will end up getting fixed with it, which is Starfleet's concern about the Genesis planet and why they don't want anyone going back, including Kirk, needs to somehow be made like crystal effing clear to yep. everybody yeah, so absolutely. that when which he it gets never the re- is in the movie. Which it never is. And if they had fixed that, then you wouldn't have to worry about this. But kind of looking at this in a vacuum, it feels like, well, everybody should be friends and it, it, maybe not but like but where where i think the the note is right and this is one of my fundamental problems in star trek 3 is they 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 didn't they they left money on the table in terms of the the danger of the genesis device and why everyone was freaking mm-hmm. no because it's the equivalent of of the the nuclear genie now you don't right. want certain countries to get nuclear bombs because they'll use them and 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 you know, uh, obviously, it's it would be a real it would be a real problem for all of us. Right. And yeah. I think, but it, the, but you don't keep Doctor Oppenheimer from visiting the site where they built. No, no. It. <laughs> Absolutely, and I and I think furthermore to that note, it, Gene makes a good note. Is like, you know, wouldn't Kirk call on a friend because there were so many different people that he knew, you know, who had a ship, who who would yeah. who would who you know an ex girlfriend or your revered or, uh, Admiral Nagur, you know, or someone. Yeah. But, you know, obviously, you know, uh, Harv just wants to protect the trailer moment of blowing up the Enterprise because, you know, he says we killed Spock in Star Trek 2. What can you do in Star Trek 3 that's going to be as big as that? So blowing up the Enterprise. So he doesn't want to even entertain any other possibilities than stealing the Enterprise. Right. Which, in fairness, is still a great scene. It is absolutely a great scene. The word is no. Therefore, we're going anyway. But um, but, you know, what Gene is saying is not unreasonable from a narrative story perspective. Mm-hmm. OK, uh, scene 41, scene 80. This is a great note. Even with the, quote, Star Wars bar safely out of sight across the street, this still comes off as very much a Star Wars ish scene. For example, with its seedy waitress and McCoy attempting to secure a vessel in the bar here from an alien and so on. Suggest at least that this be made someplace other than a bar. 
His, uh, Harv Bennett's note is hard to read, but it looks, it looks like, like the first two letters are FU. It sure looks like FU to me, which, 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 which is really funny because even more so in the script, the way it was shot is even more like Star Wars. The yeah. holographic game, the aliens, um, yeah. you know, the, the you know, Alan's, uh, I forget the actor's name. Yeah. Character. The, the you know, featherhead. With the big ears, you know. Oh, my God. Gene is so right. It's so cheesy. It is the most dated aspect of that movie. It has such Star Wars envy, but it's yeah. the cheap version of Star Wars. It's the bar scene before they reshot it. It's right. the bar scene from the holiday special is what yeah. it is. It, it, it's the Stuart <laughs> Freeborn aliens before Rick Baker redid it. Right. Yeah. So, okay. Um, page 49, scene 94. 94. Suggest visual excitement of the Grissom shields giving way and then the burst destroys the ship. And Harv's note is what? No something? No. I can't tell. No, no time. No time. No time. Yeah. No, no time. No time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, page 49, scene 96. Again, Gene, exciting something he thinks will make it a little more exciting. Suggest potential excitement in Krug's ritualistically using his beast to kill the gunner rather than using a mere phaser blast. I think this is a great. He, I think so great too, note. as long as you cut the word ritualistically. Look, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great note, but I'd hate to see how Kirk Thatcher, how bad that would have looked in 1983 with Kirk uh, puppeteering the creature. No, he wouldn't be on. puppeteering. They'd throw it on the on the uh, actor and he'd be going. Ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So in this case. Uh, the reality of, of it might have trans transcended the uh, the actual note. Um, <laughs> could you just imagine? <laughs> oh man! Okay, just, you know, uh, move its arms around. Pretend like it's attacking you. <laughs> it's like the, all of a sudden it's uh, it's Ed Wood with like yes, you know, exactly. Bella Lugosi wrestling the octopus. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> so on page fifty-two, scene ninety-eight, um, uh, Gene is concerned about what uh, the way McCoy is treated. Trust that Federation's hurried transfer of McCoy to psychiatric doesn't come off as negative and heartless as it reads. Certainly an optimistic future handles distinguished physicians with more courtesy and care than this. Like Simon Van Gelder? Yes, <laughs> not like Simon Van Gelder. <laughs> Harv says not negative, not heartless. Okay, well, in that case. <laughs> this is another yeah, except, thing that I except when someone says they're taking him to the federation funny farm funny farm yeah, right it. exactly which yeah. i thought was kind of a funny line but um but i think uh this is another note that is solved by by correcting the core issue that he's talking about earlier with admiral morrow and everybody yeah. else because the second that you buy into the idea that the genesis planet is a big effing deal. And McCoy is running around in CD bars, which yeah, I yelling about it. Yeah. Yelling about it. It's like, hi, I'm with Federation security and you need to shut the fuck up. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I get it. Now this next one, it's funny because I would have thought this would have been the note where he asked for a cameo, but instead yeah. he says that <laughs> he doesn't, he doesn't like the way this scene is written. So uh, Gene, why, why, why don't you like this scene? Are these Federation or Starfleet guards? Would either have a big, paunchy man on duty there? We hope so. Not, not very important, except that a succession of such things, again, becomes more Star Wars or Buck Rogers than Star Trek. What's he trying to say about Gil Gerard here? Oh, I think you know. I think you know. Exactly. Or William Shatner. What's he trying to say about Shatner in this? 
Uh, hey now. Federation and Starfleet personnel have always been uh, big paunchy men. Very very fit. Yes. Unfortunately, throughout the, the 70s and 80s, always had these horribly dated mustaches. Like yes. the guy who Spock gives the neck pinch in Star Trek promotion picture. Yeah. And then Tom also Mor- Tom Morga, who is also yeah. in that scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. It's the same guy. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> oh, that's hysterical. I had no idea. I yeah. learned so much on this show. <laughs> that's great. OK, um, now, you know, it's it, what I love about um, and you'll see this in the studio notes, too. Um, there's a there's a sense of really being very protective of the Uhura character. So Gene addresses this here as well. Is Uhura actually stationed here? If so, it's a very pessimistic look at the way a future Starfleet rewards its people for devoted service. Will the audience accept their leaving communications expert Uhura behind without a great deal more motivation than this? All right, yes, but fixing. Right, (laughs) which is a fair response, right? It's, it's, um, which I I think is kind of getting at, yeah, it's like the, the logistics of dealing with her and the way that Gene wants to deal with her, I think are probably wrong. And also, by the way, I mean, what are they going to use her for? Well, I think if you, if well. you'll see the studio <laughs> notes, you'll see the studio notes also have a similar uh, mm-hmm. concern that she's underutilized, which I don't think is necessarily wrong, but um, this is a big note that Gene has. And um, Harf tends to, to agree. And is open to, he, he's willing to discuss it with LN Leonard Nimoy. So, um, why don't you, why, Gene, why don't you share your concern here with us? If it is so easy to automate the Enterprise, why hasn't it been done before? I suggest we play it as the Enterprise already being very automated, but with the exigencies of space service requiring a crew even then. Also, people need a community of people around them in assignments which may last for years. Thus suggests that our starship still needs a crew for fully efficient operation and that Kirk and his friends are taking a large risk in manning her this way, as they discover later. And Harv agrees with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does He does note in the next uh, comment that there's guaranteed laughter from the audience if a space vessel stops when power is turned off. But apparently that didn't stop them from putting uh, the sound of uh, the Excelsior running out of gas. But it was kind of funny. Um, no, it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was funny. No, <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> right? Guaranteed laughter, right? It's like, is that like a suggestion or is that a warning? I don't know. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Um, Sorry, I, I had to switch over. I had an audio problem, but uh, it's you had a uh, burnout. It's fixed. <laughs> we had okay. another burnout. Okay. Um, okay, so scene 67. This is something that Harv really objects to. Page 67, scene 140. Suggests that the Klingons are acting quite human here rather than being the bizarrely inhuman aliens they've always been before. Suggest our Klingons still need quite a bit of inventive thinking and rewrite to give them the unusual perspectives and customs that they should have. Yeah, I think he's, he's just sort of... Uh, thinking that they're too normal, that they're too, you know, from central casting. He's, yeah, yeah. he's not wrong. It's just an obnoxious note because it's, it's what if it's different as opposed to 
like this is kind of analyzing like what's what's wrong with the with the the motivations in terms of how they're acting and kind of how that should change behavior. It's like it. He's a writer. He's the goddamn creator of the show. Like it, it the note needs to be better. I've got a note well, in his note. <laughs> well, we we see Harv starting to lose his patience in yep. this next one. Page seventy three, scene one fifty six, suggests that Spock's growth curve here seems to be accelerating to where he might be an old man before the week is out. Or if his rate of growth is meant to be variable, perhaps someone should say so. Harv's response, someone does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. And, uh, and then, you know, um, Gene expresses uh, a little bafflement why the Enterprise doesn't detect the alien vessel. Perhaps it's because of the limited crew ab uh, aboard the Enterprise. Um, and then he also wonders how Kruge knows it is a mad Vulcan boy, to which Harv agrees. Um, he says it, it's he suggests it's doubtful that the Klingon sergeant's communicator picks up the same frequencies used by Kirk's, um, to which Harv seems to indicate that's unclear. Um, and uh, Gina's concern on page 78, scene 167 about uh, space. Space warfare. Gene, tell us why. Space vessels 5,000 meters from one another are practically touching. Tens or even hundreds of thousands of meters would fit the realities of space better. This comment doubly true on next page when they are down to 800 meters away from each other. He didn't see Star Trek 2. <laughs> yeah, look, I think that, you know, obviously ILM's going to do what they're doing. It's like they're not saying, oh, well, the script says it's 800 meters away. Guys, so we got to scale this exactly right. So, yeah, moving, okay. moving on. Suggests that it does not seem sensible that the starship shields come on and off on voice orders alone, especially when the vessel is already on red alert. Won't many in our audience know that human reactions and spoken orders are intolerably slow, even in some of today's military situations? But yes, in the optimistic future of Star Trek, we hope that the fucking shields will obey our commands. Hey, Siri, will you please lower the shields? So you oh, God damn it. I, see, now my shields are lowering. Thank you. <laughs> and now Siri's talking to me. Raise yes. them. Raise, Raise them. them. <laughs> Where's the override? The override. <laughs> Thank you, Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> God, what have oh I done? God, <laughs> you turned death into a fighting chance for life. <laughs> what uh, I always do. Speaking of that, the next one says, suggest our audience saw Kirk getting caught with his shields down a couple of times <laughs> on the last picture and may find it something less than commendable that it happens to him all over again here. <laughs> Good for Gene. He's not wrong. Get caught with yeah. my, I got caught with my shields down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what it's called. And yeah. then he questions the use of the Klingon dagger in his next note. That's just wrong. I question the Klingon using a dagger. Unless effort is spent to convince the audience that swords and daggers have some ceremonial meaning to these warriors, it's likely to come off as space pirates. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't. It, it was didn't. fine. Yeah. Well, yeah, just just wait till next generation for your space pirates there. Yeah, it's coming right. in Gambit. OK, page 99, scene 233. Uh, this is a big this is a biggie for Gene. This is a biggie. This has this has the magic marker scratches through it. Uh, so just just so you know, 
suggests that the entire regrowth of Spock needs some careful re-examination. For one thing, it does not seem at all reasonable that the young Spock's mind would be a void. It does seem possible that the, he could know nothing of the Vulcan language or his Vulcan background at this time and may have to have those memories replaced there by mind meld. One could get oneself easily painted into a corner by stuff like this and probably deserves more care and more careful explanation than the usual story situation. Is he saying I need to have died <laughs> to discuss his, to discuss <laughs> his your viewpoint on, on death? death? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but now, you know, we talked about earlier on, he really is concerned about the, um, the refusion. And on page 110, see, scene 273, you really see uh, the beginning of a series of notes uh, addressing his concerns about the, um, the Faltor pan. These are, these are really good, and these go to the heart of it. What does Spock mean to the Vulcan race? These comments and this scene are really very difficult to understand since Star Trek has always played Spock as a half-breed Vulcan sometimes barely tolerated by pure Vulcans. He has spent much of his life trying to exorcise his human half. The fact is, father is a great Vulcan, does give him certain privileges, as we saw in Amok time. But remember that some of the attending Vulcans look down on him even there. The fact that he may be quite famous in Starfleet for his rare abilities does not make him a revered figure on his own planet. Yes, the temples and the thousands of extras and the torchlight parades make for interesting photography, but do we really want to risk this if it comes off as unbelievable or even amusing to some? Mm-hmm. I think it's a great point. Yeah. yeah. Except Absolutely. that, you know, the, the, the counter is... We've long in prospect. That nobody's thinking about. The, the audience is simply not doing that math, like in that moment. Because we have asked the audience to invest emotionally in what's happening with Spock and with everybody else, and well, what we, you know, what I mean. It, it's fixed in the in the in the film right. because we don't get that big perception. That's right. That's right. And I think yeah. he was absolutely right with the way that it was originally scripted, with you know mm. them giving you know ha- having a, a welcome ass. home Spock yeah. day. Yeah, and hundreds of, of Vulcans lining yeah. the streets, and then going up to the temple and all these people, and then. The young, um, young Vulcan running up to Spock and saying, you know, live long and prosper Spock. And, and asking and Vulcan women asking him to sign him, sign them and stuff. Like that. Sign yeah. their ears, right. sign their ears, <laughs> sign my ears, Spock. <laughs> OK, now, but here, perhaps it, it, it may be one of the most important notes and, and really, uh, I, I think, a very uh, polarizing uh, uh, for people who. Who like this and other people say, yeah, you're right on Gene. So uh, page 117, scene 293. This is the very end of the movie. What about Kirk's mutiny in stealing the Enterprise and the several other things left up in the air? Is the fact that Spock now recognizes Kirk a sufficient ending to a major motion picture? And while that hangs in the air, I'll tell you what Hart Bennett's response was. Not surprisingly. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> and this note also was uh, crossed out on with a magic marker. I'm with Harv on this, man, um, because I think, yes, it's totally true. We go into the next movie wondering about these things and all that other crap. But the, the emotional heart of this movie is not 
we, we know that he committed mutiny. We know that he left Starfleet. We know that he did all these things. What happened after that is what happened after that. This is yeah. this kind of notice how you end up with like, you know, 45 minutes at the end of Return of the King where you're doing the housekeeping on the rest of Return of the King, right? The ending of that movie is your name is Jim. I mean, and you're done. You're out, right? Yeah. Leave him on, leave him I you agree. The, the ending is one of the things that I love about the movie. Yes, totally. Yeah. 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 Speaking of endings, <laughs> speaking of endings, here's the, here's the last paragraph from this uh, memo. Rather than attempt a summary here, it seems more important to get these comments off to you quickly. Clearly, I am concerned about a number of key areas, but no doubt you and Leonard are too. I'll try to put my summary comments into some kind of sensible order and get a memo on that to you early next week. Best regards, Gene Roddenberry. Typed by Susan Sackett. Okay, who's going to ring the bell? Because that's the <laughs> end of part one. This, this, this is such a super, super size drug spurts that we're going to have to split it into two parts. You just heard Gene Roddenberry's notes on Star Trek Three, but in part two, you're going to get to hear not only the studio's notes, but the revenge of Gene when he realizes that Harv hasn't taken his notes from the last memo, and we get to do it all over again. There's so high drama uh, waiting next week. Should we like the wrath of Gene? Oh. No, we did that. We did the Wrath of Gene. That was um, his memo to Shatner and Nimoy and D. Kelly right. oh, at yeah. the uh, at the end of first season. This of, is more uh, like the vengeance of Gene. Yeah. yeah, because at the end of the universe lies the beginning of <laughs> vengeance. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this but this this was really interesting. We've been promising this episode for a long time. I'm glad we we finally got around to recording it because um, it's so interesting to to do a deep dive into Star Trek three because the level of discourse on Twitter is ridiculous. You know, I, I told you that the impetus for me going to the garage and finding these notes was seeing someone saying Star Trek three is a masterpiece. But every time we make a joke about Star Trek three, we have like 80 people going, I don't know why you guys are bashing Star Trek three. It's so great. And, uh, and we don't know that they actually sound like that, to be fair. <laughs> they might. <laughs> it's possible. We'll find out in Las Vegas when they, they come up to us and say, hey, I really love the podcast, but I, I hate the politics and I hate that you don't like Star Trek three. And they hate the politics of Star Trek Three. Exactly. <laughs> so did we'll find Gene Roddenberry. Now we're going to find that out in part two. And if that's not a reason to come back, I don't know what is. So, uh, and you know, we're going to look at a couple more of these movies um, coming up in a few weeks. We're going to do an episode on um, uh, Michael Pillar's no holds barred uh, takedown of his own movie, Star Trek Insurrection, where we'll be joined by Steve Esbell from um, uh, Fox. Um, I'm just uh, we're just waiting for him to read the book so we can do the episode. Uh, but it's a wonderfully candid, as only Michael Peller could write it, uh, uh, assessment of um, his uh, his uh, mistakes uh, in, in doing Star Trek Insurrection. So if you like this uh, episode where we look at Star Trek three through the eyes of Gene Roddenberry, really, it's not our perception. It's Gene's. No, and the these, aren't our, our, these aren't our words. These are from the great bird. But good words. <laughs> That's where that's, ideas begin. That's where ideas begin and end, apparently. <laughs> so anyway, join us next week for another episode of Inglorious Trexperts for part two as we continue our search for logic. Same search Trek for time, same Trek podcast. <laughs> and of course, a very special thanks to uh, our entire team here at Inglorious Trexperts, uh, sound engineers Bill Ritter and Mark Rivera, our um, uh, co-producers, uh, Zach Raggett and Peter Holmstrom, 
uh, Dylan Middlebrook, our video editor, and of course our producer, Natalie Miscali, because it takes a village to put on a podcast. And um, we're looking forward to seeing all of you next week for part two. And if you want to let us know what you thought of part one, you can check us out on social media at Inglorious Trek on Twitter or Inglorious Trek Experts on Facebook and Instagram. Until then, on behalf of Ashley, Darren, and myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking and gloriously, of course. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.